Welcome to the I Am Vinyl podcast. My name is Pete, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in here at cnjradio.com or via Apple Podcasts if you're subscribed there. And today's episode is following up the first KISS Roundtable discussion, and appropriately, it led off, as you heard, with a KISS cover. And why is this episode leading off with a KISS cover instead of just talking about the actual subject of this podcast? Well... That is the very first recording that I had ever heard from Nirvana about a year or so before Nevermind was released. And this was thanks to my brother purchasing the Hard to Believe, a Kiss Covers compilation on vinyl from a local record store that's no longer open these days called Zigzag Records. And he showed it to me and played it for me soon after he had come home with it. And so I'd asked him to record it onto a blank tape for me before I eventually purchased my own cassette version of it at ZigZag, probably a year or so later, and probably after I had purchased Nevermind. And as for their version of Do You Love Me, I know some KISS fans hate it, but even from the very beginning of hearing their cover of the song, because I can see a lot of the humor in making fun of Paul Stanley's stage banter and how he'd often bring that to some of the studio recordings... I honestly never felt insulted by Nirvana's version of that song. And to my knowledge, Kurt Cobain was a fan of some of Kiss's music as a kid. Chris Novoselic's aping of Paul Stanley during the choruses, and especially at the end of the song, where he's really trying to tell you that he doesn't know what he's trying to say and that he's trying to know, <laughs> was immediately hilarious to me at 14, 15 years old and already being a Kiss fan for over 10 years by that point. And on the actual production side of their rendition of the song, I do really like the way the guitar sound over the rough drum production and Chris Novoselic's bass. And sometime around 
the point where I had heard their version of Do You Love Me, I had also seen an MTV news feature on the burgeoning Seattle music scene, which had a live clip of Nirvana while being mentioned as one of the featured bands to be on the lookout for. And like I said, I believe this aired sometime between 89, if not early 90, late 90. I, I forget exactly when this aired. I even went and looked up to see if I could find the clip, and I could not find it anywhere. So how I first heard Smells Like Teen Spirit was I tuned in to a show on a local college radio station, WSOU 89.5, which played new releases from promo singles and albums every week. And I happened to tune in on the night they premiered Smells Like Teen Spirit, the day before the release of Nevermind. And I liked it so much, and it impacted me so much hearing it that first time that the next day I recall going to another local record store that I've mentioned a bunch of times, Record Factory, and I had gone there after school, and this is when I had just started high school at this point. So I had gone to Record Factory to see if they had the album after school, which they did, and they also happened to have the CD single for Smells Like Teen Spirit, which has the two unreleased tracks on it, which also added to my interest to buy it along with the album. And they also happened to have the CD EP that was released under a year or so before Nevermind called Sliver. And this was right behind the Smells Like Teen Spirit CD single. So I ended up picking up all three of those in one day, and I still own all of them to this day. And as I recall, a few weeks later, I then picked up Bleach on CD as I was already pretty hooked on Nevermind. And Nirvana had quickly become my favorite band, which I would hype up to any of my friends who would listen to me at that point. And less than two months after Nevermind was released, I recorded my first legit, I would say, recording, which happened to be a Nirvana collage. And this was a collage of three songs that I had put together in my mind and then tracked. And it was Smells Like Teen Spirit, a little bit of Breed, and a little bit of Territorial Pissings. So a little bit of each track that I strung together. And it was produced by my older brother, Vincent, in our basement on an 8-track reel-to-reel. And I had recorded this partially for fun and also partially as an audition tape for a talent show or that was happening at our high school at that point. And so I was going to try to put a band together to play those three tracks that were strung together. And I ended up just meeting some like-minded people I'd become friends with at that school who were also there while I was submitting my tape. They likely noticed whatever band shirt of choice I had made for that day to wear underneath my uh, school uniform. And um, I eventually formed my first band out of meeting some of those people and some local friends in early 1992. As with many people, Nevermind was a game changer for me as well. But I'm not one of those people that completely dismissed my entire record collection. Yes, I did walk away from certain bands. Uh, I can admit it at this point, being a young kid at that time and very impressionable. And so for this episode, we're going to feature tracks from the 20th anniversary 4LP edition. And in between the tracks, there is going to be clips from the classic albums documentary that's aired probably about a million times on VH1, which features interviews with Dave Grohl, Chris Novoselic, producer Butch Vig, the A&R of DGC Records, Gary Gersh, Jonathan Pullman and Niels Bernstein from Sub Pop Records, Thurston Moore, Sonic Youth, Jack and Dino, the producer of Bleach, and Rolling Stone Magazine's own Joey Ramone lookalike, David Frick. And there's also going to be some other random clips that I've pulled from elsewhere that I'm not going to name here. We'll just 
let your ears hear them for themselves. And also, after the album is done, there's going to be some B-sides that I've pulled from the 4LP edition as well that have been favorites of mine for years. So let's get started with the first segment, which is going to lead in to the album itself. And here is the intro from the Classic Albums documentary. KNDD 107.7, the end, Seattle's original alternative. Right now, a song that sounds as good today as it did when it was released in 1991. It didn't sound like history. It didn't sound like the future. It just sounded amazing. I, I wasn't thinking that we had made a classic album. I thought, wow, it sounds good. It announced the new guard in rock music, the new regime. I think there was a whole generation of people that were waiting to have something to follow. Coming up here is the Beavers. It's one of the first vocals that we overdubbed. It's the Hello, Hello section. You can hear it build in intensity. And he morphs the lyrics from Hello, Hello to How Low, How Low. It explodes into the chorus. It's fantastic. What set Nirvana apart was Kurt Cobain. He was the outsider. He spoke to, to legions of, of dysfunctional kids. You could tell that with Nirvana, there was nothing affected about it. They didn't set out to be rock stars. They were just these guys from out in the hinterlands. By the time Nirvana had really started to gel, get its sound together, you know, Sub Pop was really the best place to go. And the fact was that people at Sub Pop could recognize a great band. We were very disciplined and we took rehearsals and playing music seriously. There was really no messing around, no partying or having girls over or anything. It was a very serious and we'd play the songs over and over again until we felt they sounded right and, you know, worked out all the bugs. At that point, we'd go in the studio and, and we'd just do our thing. The Bleach record was recorded over, I think, total amount of time that was spent on it was about 30 hours. They were very much about the music at the time, absolutely focused on what they were doing, which, you know, they had to be very efficient to be able to make recordings that quickly, that good. For all of the discussion about grunge being punk rock and hardcore. The fact was, Kurt was a huge Beatles fan, and very much in particular, a John Lennon fan. None of the other grunge musicians could really say that, you know. Um, in fact, I think they were all busy rebelling against the Beatles.
So then Kurt started discussing the recording of his second album. And, you know, I had made the suggestion, we had made the suggestion of Butch Vig, and he was familiar with Butch and very excited at the prospect of working with him. They were doing a bunch of shows on the West Coast, and then they were coming to the Midwest. I think they played Kansas City or someplace, and in Chicago or Iowa, I can't remember exactly. And, and they actually had a gig schedule in Madison. And we set aside about seven days, uh, which was an extravagant budget for me at the time. Right off the bat, I was impressed with, uh, with the new songs, because uh, they were heads and tails better crafted than the songs on Bleach. One of the problems that we ran into was there were a couple songs that Kurt hadn't finished lyrics on, and he sort of blew his voice out about the fourth or fifth day. He sang so hard, I think it was on lithium. We, we just basically had to shut down recording. Jonathan flew in from uh, Sub Pop and, and heard the stuff and loved it and then said, well, well, we'll get him back here in like three, four weeks and we'll just come in and finish the last songs and then do a proper mix. And, uh, and then I didn't hear anything for a while. The drummer they had when they first started coming to Seattle was Chad and he played on parts of Bleach, did all the touring but uh, they were sort of dissatisfied with his drumming. And so then in the period between the two albums, they would do a few other tours and they would get uh, substitute drummers. They had Dale Crover from the Melvins and then uh, they got Dan Peters out of the band Mudhoney to play some shows. And then we finally landed with Dave Grohl. And once Dave joined, Nirvana was just like a tight machine. It just all fell into place. So I don't know if it was Providence or what, or something guided us to get together and uh, you could feel the impact right away. We had that sort of do-it-yourself punk rock ethic that we all shared. I don't think it would have worked if one person didn't have that. I mean, honestly, there was hardly any career ambition at all. We knew that there was no way we could be the biggest band in the world. We just wanted to play. Sub Pop at the time was having all sorts of financial difficulties, and we, if I, you know, if I can, if I can be candid with you, we didn't really know what we were doing at the time. There was this whole deal with Sub Pop, and they were going to sign a, some, they were going to be a subsidiary of some big major label, and we just felt like, wow, cut out the middleman. I remember saying that we should just get our own deal. Any band worth its salt, or any band that knows it's worth its salt, will want to reach the widest audience possible. And certainly by 1990, 1991, signing to a major label was not considered the worst thing you could do. If anything, it was 
it was evidence that the revolution might be succeeding. As an A&R person, when you're in the moment of trying to sign something, it's the only thing that matters in the world. So there is some of that, you know, I have to sign this thing. Um, but it wasn't because I thought, wow, this is going to be bigger than everything else, or this is going to, you know, change the face of popular music or anything like that. I just thought, I thought that there was something, there was something really special that happened between Dave and Chris and Kurt when they got on stage. <laughs> We went to DGC, which was the David Geffen company, and started talking to them seriously and eventually struck a deal. I really wanted to do Nevermind. Uh, I didn't know if I had a shot because I was still really unknown, and, and I knew that the, the major labels always like to have a, a, a tried and true producer at the helm. One reason why we decided to do Nevermind with Butch was how patient he is and it was such a great experience working with him in Madison and the label wanted us to work with other people but it was kind of intimidating and we were comfortable with Butch. I was sort of shocked when they said oh we've got like sixty thousand dollars to do the record and uh, I mean that, again that seems so extravagant compared to what I was had been working on in the in the past and so we thought Sound City would be good because it had the Neve console and a really good selection of mics and it was in L.A. I think that the label wanted to keep their eyes on me, or, you know, be around just to make sure that uh, things weren't going a little crazy. It wasn't the Hollywood studio that I imagined it to be. It wasn't Capitol Records Studios or A&M Studios. It was out in the middle of Van Nuys in the valley in this small warehouse district. But you walk in and walk down the hallway and you see Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, uh, some Tom Petty records on the wall. Some classic albums had been done there. It was very bare bones, but it had a great big live track and still sounds amazing today. This song is called Smells Like Teen Spirit. I totally remember the first song I heard Teen Spirits. They were playing at the OK Hotel, and it was the first time they played it live, and it was a huge show. I remember seeing it. It was like, okay, now it's all over. Like, now they're actually writing, you know, huge, amazing songs. It's quite significant that that, of all the many catchy songs on uh, Nevermind, that was one that hadn't been written maybe a year in advance. Songs like In Bloom and uh, Lithium uh, were already, you know, they were old Nirvana songs, but Smells Like Teen Spirit was a new one. It was one of the last ones they wrote before the album was finished recording. In the chorus we double tracked. They wanted to make it sound more powerful. And he was great at double tracking. He would just run down a take and do another take, and they always locked up really, really well. Here comes the guitar solo.
basically cop the vocal melody instead of trying to come up with something punky or frantic or strangle a guitar like he usually did. You just cop the exact vocal melody, and it's it works really well. And then at the end of the solo, he lets it feed back into the third verse. It's got this great resonant feedback. We actually pulled it back in the final mix, but it would have been cool to leave it in there because it's got great overtones right through here. to bend and morph. Really creepy sounding. Kurt was on the button with like playing to the, his guitar to deliver the sentiment of what he needed to get across. And that's the best guitar playing, you know. His voice down the last chorus. It's starting to get pretty shot. He's been going so hard through the song, pushing so hard. Sounds like his vocal cords are starting to come right out of his throat. Especially when he gets to a denial. Pretty powerful sounding. I remember Butch putting up the rough mixes after Kurt laid the vocals down, and he'd be like, Listen to this song. And he'd like crank it in the control room and it'd just be like, it would just come out like just like a barrage, like, wow, did we do that? You know, it's just like, how did we do that? I remember around the time we finished doing rough mixes and, and listening to everything back to back that I thought all the songs were really, really strong. And, and I kept thinking, man, maybe there's an audience out there. We, we might go beyond their, their sub pop crowd. You know, maybe we can sell a couple hundred thousand records. We predicted or hoped the projection for Nevermind would reach 50,000 copies, and that was based on the fact that Sonic Youth's Goo album had sold 100,000 or so to that point, and uh, we felt that if Nirvana could do half of what Sonic Youth had done on DGC, that would be success. And when I was introducing the record to the, to the company, that I said to them that, you know, if we worked really, really hard and we got a little bit lucky with the video, um, and the band didn't implode that, you know, over the course of a year that we could probably sell a half a million records. We were sitting around in the rented apartment in Los Angeles and talking about ideas for the video, and there was this one film that Kurt was really into where these, the kids just freak out and take over the school. That was the genesis of it, school and youthful rebellion. Nirvana 
Madonna hired me because my reel was so bad that it was a very punk and cool thing to do. Let's hire this really crap director to do this video, and we'll get something really kind of not corporate. I saw the band play at the Roxy. We knew we didn't have any money. And the kids were moshing and jumping and doing all this stuff. And, and I said, that's great, man. We've got to get these kids down to the set. So all these people showed up. And Sam had a bullhorn. By the first chorus, the place was just a riot. The place was going completely. I, and I remember him screaming into the megaphone, like, stop, cut, stop, cut. And the place was just being torn to shreds, you know? It was hilarious. It looked like the, the greatest gig you could ever imagine. You know, high school gone to hell, cheerleaders, you know, dancing around, anarchy, so you get the black flag, minor threat type of aesthetic in there. It was all there. And there was literally nothing else on television like it. It changed uh, the entire look of MTV. It made the band successful and, you know, it helped them sell a lot of records, but it made MTV very successful. It gave them a whole new platform to work from and a whole new set of, you know, a whole new generation to, like, sell to. I don't think it was cynical and, you know, the media got it all like cynical, grungy, ooh, despair, but it wasn't. It was just a shot of life. And I think that is what everyone responded to. Some kid heard the song in some mall and started moshing around and fell off the balcony. It was a phenomenon. That energy, something came together it's really wild and it, it affected so many people sometimes you'd show up to a gig and there'd be an extra couple hundred people outside hoping they could get in and the shows became more and more chaotic it was just one of those things that happens maybe once every generation it's just it's just this this role like this this momentum you know word of mouth you know, you must hear this band Nirvana. Never mind the fact that they had actually been playing for years, they had made records. In terms of who knew them at one point and how everyone knew them at the next one, it literally was overnight. We just tell that it wasn't like a normal record. Kids weren't reacting to it like a normal record. Um, they were reacting to it like a movement. In the issue of Billboard that was dated January 12, 1992, Nirvana were number one in the Billboard charts. They had knocked Michael Jackson off the top of the charts. Just unbelievable. That was a pretty big deal at the time, you know, that some Seattle band that we knew had just displaced Michael Jackson in the number one spot on the album charts. That was inconceivable. Not only did it reach number one, but it kind of just like, it just broadened out and like completely uh, changed the demographic of what the rock audience was, you know, in the USA. And then it went global, you know? I mean, it was crazy. We weren't prepared for it, and uh, it's never been a main goal of ours.
Then Bloom is one of the first songs that we cut at Sound City. I was familiar with it because we had actually worked on it for Sub Pop. I thought it'd be good to start with a song at Sound City that I was familiar with, knew the arrangement. And this is basically the setup that we had in the room. If you take some of the tracks out here, mute this, you could hear the bass and, and the drums. Dave and Chris had a great groove going. That's why we got on the first take. I didn't throw a bunch of drum fills in there. I kept it as simple as possible, and that was sort of an unspoken rule. As far as I'm concerned, for the role that I did, it was about the serving the song. So after we did the basic take and had Kurt's vocal down, uh, we had Dave come in and do harmonies on the chorus. So that was the first thing that we added to the track. Their voices sound pretty cool together. Very similar tonal quality. And I thought it might sound better if they doubled it because it's going to just make it fuller and a little bit richer. So we went back and. Uh, Kurt did a double track, and again, he didn't like doing double tracks, so I had to use the John Lennon reference, and every, every time he resisted, I said, John Lennon did it, so he'd go, okay. So that's Kurt doubled, and he had Dave that sounded good, but then we thought, well, if we get to double Kurt, we might as well double Dave, too, so then we went in. becomes a magnificent chorus. A thoroughly wonderful show from the world-famous Dancing Poodles. Next, ladies and gentlemen, we have three fine young men from Seattle. They're coming, hold on, they're coming. They're thoroughly all right and decent fellows with their hit single, In Bloom. Here they are, Nirvana!
can't say enough nice things about them. They're gonna be really big stars. Let's give a big hand and they're better. Kurt used to say that music comes first and lyrics come second. And I think Kurt's Kurt's main focus was melody. blend with the vocal and the aesthetic of the song it just creates a world of its own and so when you're in that world I guess you know come as you are I mean that's not I'm not commenting on what that song's about I'm just that's the way I see those lyrics it's like oh yeah it's beautiful it flows really nice and it draws you in and that's the mark of any good art He was not a linear writer. He did not say, I started at point A, I got to point B, and I'm going to end the song at point C. It was like, these are bits that come together. And a lot of what he wrote had to do with the sound of words and communicating something inside those words that wasn't necessarily a reflection of the spelling or the grammar. Musically, we just wanted it to be almost like children's songs. I remember we would always make that analogy. We would always make, uh, we would always tell people that the songs were intended to be as simple as possible.
Welcome back to the Headbangers Ball. Ricky Rackman here. Now, I don't know that much about how the industry charts and stuff like that work, but as far as street buzz goes, I can tell you honestly, I have never heard of a band getting a bigger buzz quicker than this band, and I'm not saying it seriously because they're here. I'd like to welcome Chris and Kurt of the band Nirvana. Hi, Ricky. So how's it going? I mean, it's got to be, first of all, love the suit. Thanks a lot. Be very comfortable on planes, I think. Um, on planes. Yeah, well, it's a, planes it's a bar. Fire. Headbangers ball, so I thought I'd wear a gown. Dress for the ball. There you go. He wouldn't wear his tux. He didn't give me a corsage either. No. So you hurt his feelings. At least um, I asked you out. <laughs> this thing has got to be like, I mean, pretty wild. I mean, everywhere you go, in all different types of the music scene, people like really seem to be getting into Nirvana right now. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I mean, isn't it pretty overwhelming? Everybody wants to be hip. <laughs> and so that's what Everyone it is. Everyone wants to be accepted. That's right. It's like the core of um, personality and ego is like humans are social creatures. So um, I can't hear. Covering <laughs> anything is covering your ears. Oh, it's good to look radar. at you. Yeah, and that's the uh, psychological aspect of the band's popularity. Mm, maybe they like the record. I don't yeah, know. It could be the music, maybe. Uh, I mean, I like the music. No, I don't no, know about no. You don't understand. It's got to be a very heavy, heartfelt conversation. Now, emotions. How long have you guys been together? I mean, you had an album out before this one. We've been together since like early '87, and our album came out in um, first album, Bleach, came out in July of '89. And that was kind of just a part of an underground scene. Sort of. Yeah, it was totally underground. Was nope. like the sub pop label. Uh -huh. Which is basically a lot of bands from Seattle, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's like Fluid. They're from um, Denver. L7. They were Great from band. L.A. Oh, yeah. Great okay, band. we're going to be back talking to these guys in a little bit. Also, we're going to be playing their video, Smells Like Teen Spirit, which is very quickly becoming one of the most requested videos here on MTV also. So stick around as the Headbangers Ball continues. <laughs>
I'm so happy Cause today found my friends They're in my head I'm so ugly That's okay Cause so are you Every day for all I care I'm not scared Light my candles In our days Cause I found God Lithium was a widely prescribed drug Sort of pre-Prozac For manic depression but what a great upbeat pop song, you know, even though the lyrics themselves are pretty dark if you look at them closely. Uh, nonetheless, it, it's such a, you know, I remember seeing Nirvana live and Lithium was the song that the crowd danced to. It's one of the few Nirvana songs that you could, you know, it's very poppy and upbeat. <laughs> artist I think sometimes writing is a form of therapy and I think Kurt had a lot of demons inside him and that was one way of kind of getting things out of his system and uh, a lot of them I think were just about how he felt about life and and even though you couldn't quite tell what he was singing about you knew it was intense as hell
One of the songs was actually recorded at Smart Studios that was going to be for the Sub Pop album and ended up uh, going on to Nevermind. It's the only song that was done here that made it on to Nevermind. The song is very spare and it's very haunting. Um, sometimes the quietest songs become the most intense. bit of a false start. You can hear how cheap the guitar sounds. All he wants a cracker. But his voice sounds fantastic. Think I should get off her first. Think she wants some water. To put out the blow. We went back and added a harmony in the chorus. Isn't me have a seed. Let me clip. Kurt was a great singer. Let me take a ride. Cut yourself. There's a mournfulness in there. It comes across. Got some rope. Haven't told. Promise you. Haven't true. Let me take a ride. Cut yourself. Was a mouth. Please myself. Polly was written about a real incident that happened. A young woman was at a show at the Community World Theater. I don't think it was a Nirvana show that was kidnapped and tortured, and it was an article that was in the Tacoma paper. She decided to come on to the guy and to start seeing him as a person, and that's when he took his guard down and she got away. And I remember Kurt, when he read that in the newspaper, was that really hit, hit him like it was really profound he's like wow 
the most remarkable thing about Polly is that, you know, he takes the point of view of the torturer. Um, you know, in some ways I compared it once to Truman Capote, whose brilliant work in Cold Blood, you know, kind of puts us in the mind of this murderer, and we eventually begin to understand that, that mindset. I mean, Polly is an amazing song. You look at that song and consider that being released on such a commercial record. spot there where Kirk came in too early and we left it in she's just as me she called me off my guard underneath the guitar and the vocals Chris's bass is just giving a cool little pulse. Keeps the track moving. There's no drums really except for the cymbal and hand percussion overdubs. Cut yourself, want some please myself. Very dark song, very beautiful.
Molly says her back hurts She's just as bored as me She called me off my guard Amazes me the will of instinct Isn't me having seed Let me clip dirty wings Let me take a ride Cut yourself Want some help Please myself Got some rope Have been told Promise you Have been true Let me take a ride Cut yourself Want some help Please myself was always to me kind of like this real sort of toxic glue and without that voice I'm kind of suspect that the band would be as great as it is but everybody knows that the amount of rasp and gravel in his throat for someone that had such good pitch and such a beautiful tone in his throat it just sounded like he was boiling nails in there he just got on that microphone and just started singing and it was very natural, wasn't forced and, and he could really, really push it too, yeah, and he was channeling something, some kind of energy.
Drain You probably has the record for most guitar overdubs on Nevermind. I think after we cut the basic take, I wasn't really happy with the sounds, and we went back and overdubbed a clean sound on the intro with Kurt's vocal, as well as one, two, three, four, five guitars, two tracks of the Mesa Boogie, uh, two tracks of the Fender Bassman, and uh, one track that we called the Super Grunge, which was a pedal into the Bassman. And uh, they're not all equal volume, but at points in the record they come up, or points in the song they come up and are blended and panned to, to give it a very kind of almost orchestral sound with the guitars. And um, I'll, I'll play the intro here. This is the, this is what it sounds like with just the with Kurt's vocal on the, in the clean guitar. One baby to another says I'm lucky to meet you. I don't care what He's still singing from the take. We take that out, and we put in the basic track, which is the drums and bass, and the main guitar that he cut with the live track. So now here's what it sounds like when it kicks in. One baby to you, another says I'm lucky to meet you. Now what I wanted to do was make the song kick right away because that first line is so key to the song. Instead of actually having him double, he did two takes on the lead vocal and they matched up really, really close. So all I had to do was basically run the levels, match the levels. So here's with both the vocals in, a second guitar, the mesa that we added. So the track is starting to build up a little bit here. So you can hear the intros a little bit fuller now. One baby to another says I'm lucky to meet you. I don't care what Still didn't sound big enough for me. So we kept overdubbing guitars. We added two more basements and the final super grunge basement with a pedal. I don't know how I got Kurt to do all those guitars. I think I kept saying, um, I, I think I was lying basically saying, um, there's a problem with the track, it didn't record properly, or it's out of tune or something. So let's just do it again. So he thought he was doing the same part over. Meanwhile, I just kept putting him to new tracks. To, so we ended up with uh, the clean track and five guitar tracks. So now it's finally sounding like a rock song. One baby to another says I'm lucky to meet you. the two Mesa tracks. Here's the two basement tracks. Here's the super grunge track. It's pretty grungy. Put them all together. It's got a pretty glorious sound. section is kind of a freeform freak out, very sonic youth, as the guitar chords sort of hang. We kept all the mics going as Kurt did the overdubs. You can hear some of the toys he brought in the studio, this little squeaky mouse toy. That sounded great when Andy mixed it because he put it through delays and it sounded very trippy spinning around. Here's some of the other instruments in here, the bass and the drums. 
sounds cool when you put the, the guitar hits in there. He was doing all these sound effects that sound like steam. Quite startling in the mix, actually. And here's Dave Snarefield. Yeah. 
Welcome back to the Headbangers Ball. Chris and Kurt from the band Nirvana are here. And you are a band that is also from Washington, but you're not from the, quote, Seattle area now, right? No, we're in the... We live on the I-5 corridor. Kurt lives in Olympia, and I live in Tacoma. Because if you notice, it's like all these bands lately, with the Alice in Chains and the Soundgarden, you know, everybody's like, oh, the, the, the big emerging Seattle rock scene. I mean, when you guys started, were you playing clubs with those bands? No, we were playing clubs with, like, Mud Honey and Tad. Fluid. Seen Tad. Fluid. Yeah, and uh, we played a show with Soundgarden in Olympia, like, out in this park during the day. It was really neat. So when you guys started, I mean, like, the bands like, like that you mentioned before, part of the sub-pop thing, right. you guys were kind of an underground, didn't start in the, let's say, quote, rock and roll clubs. You were kind of playing, like, for the college crowds and the underground yeah. scene first, right? Yeah. yeah. And then it just crossed over? Well... That's, you know, that's where we got our start, is like we were listening to Black Flag and MDC, and we, we always were like into punk rock and stuff. And we just kind of fell into this Seattle thing, like all the bands that I mentioned before. Because the way they're, they're, they're categorizing it, they're calling it, you know, part of this grunge sound. And now they've said, you know, Nirvana is the newest band in this, you know, I, I hate putting labels on things, but they're saying that you're the newest of this, the new grunge sound. Yeah. I'm starting to understand like what grunge is. It's like if you have heavy metal, it's like a lot of it's the same guitar sound. I think grunge has to do with a guitar sound. It and, does have uh, kind of a fine title. It's grunge. Like grunge is more work. organic guitars, like you know, Mud Honey. They have their crazy sounding guitars, and um, Tad just totally growly, like a different sound. Growly. Growly, yeah. So like Tad, name. he's a big bear, and he just growls. Like, oh. Should be in a tour bus with that guy. <laughs> now, we're about to play the video, which also happens to be the number five Skull Crusher, which uh, is a very <laughs> good thing. And we'll play that, and then we'll talk about it a little bit later. Would you like to lead into it for us? It's okay. Nirvana. Smells like Teen Spirit. Skull Crusher number five, also. That was Nirvana with Smells Like Teen Spirit, and Chris and Kurt of Nirvana are here with us on the Headbangers Ball, kicking it on old Jennifer. Now, um, tell us a little bit about the video. First of all, where do you find cheerleaders with tattoos? Oh, um, that, that's just at my Anarchy High question. School. At where? Anarchy High Anarchy School. Anarchy High School. Yeah. I mean, what is what is the deal the deal with that show? I mean, was that like a live performance or? No, it was a video shoot, and we had a bunch of fans come down and. Uh, they just went crazy. Now, I think they made the video, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were just so into it, and everybody was so cool, and it was a lot of fun to do. It was just crazy. People were jumping around, we're jumping around, and, you know... Yeah. It they took had a lot of patience. It was like 12 hours of yeah. listening to the song over and over and over again. Yeah, do you like doing videos? I mean, I know that it takes a long time to do and things like that. Mm. It's all right. <laughs> now, is that pretty good... Um, Example of what it's like seeing Nirvana live as far as the crowd goes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah Pretty much. Yeah, people just get wild Do you see when you go out and, and play shows the crowds are getting different like you said before you started with the kind of the underground scene And now I mean all the kids that are into all different types of bands are really getting into Nirvana In doing that we hope that we could turn them on to like different types of music like maybe the underground scene and there's more bands out there than just like these mainstream, giant, Harley riding rock bands. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of one of our missions. 
Does it turn everybody on? Also help you know all the other bands that you kind yeah, of listen to? Yeah, because uh, they're really good. I mean, the bands are. They've got something to offer musically. Every you know, all the bands that I support are are like really real, and they're like got their own thing going. And they, the bands have like good values too, like politically, political opinions, and uh, it's a neat thing. We talk a little bit about some of those bands and other stuff when we come back, 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 back.
It's the Headbangers Ball. Christian Kurt of Nirvana are here with us in the studio. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the new album, is, which is called Nevermind. Is it new? Has it been out for a while and everybody's just getting into it? It's, or is it pretty new? It's been out for about a month now. Yeah. And what, what do you think the reason is that everybody's just gotten into Nirvana so quickly? Mm. I mean, it's pretty wild. Because we have our big bandwagon and we have a bunch of Clydesdale horses, multicolored horses pulling it. And people are just jumping on and it's kind of like a king... Ken Kesey um, acid trip type thing. Uh, uh, that Passing Kool-Aid around and we're like the merry pranksters. <laughs> kind of the Jim Jones thing. Oh yeah, Kool-Aid, Jim Jones, right. Yeah, you got that. Uh, now, about some of the songs, like my favorite song on the record is Lithium because I think it, to me, I mean, it's, I like some of the old pop stuff mm -hmm. and it's got like, a, I mean, the whole album, some of the songs sound like early, real hard punk stuff and some stuff, I mean, almost reminds me of like a heavier replacements in a way. And that's, I hope you don't take that the wrong way. No, it's fine. I mean, yeah. is, what is the kind of stuff that you guys are listening to? I mean, every song has a, a real kind of different vibe to it. Well, we listen to music. We like all kinds of stuff. Um, Lead Belly, Bikini Kill, The Breeders, The Pixies, R.E.M., The Melvins. Patsy I've Klein. heard of three of those Patsy bands. Klein. Patsy Klein. Yeah. The Vaselines. Public Enemy. I mean, if there's, well, if we think there's substance there, I mean, a band has something to offer. I mean, we'll like get into it. Like, for know. instance, what's your favorite song on the record? I don't know. It's just like I've I have a lot of favorite bands, you know, but I don't have a favorite song because I kind of just like the band and um, the record. It's hard to say, and it's you know I play on the record, so I couldn't mm -hmm. really tell you. Does the whole band contribute in the writing process? Well. Kurt will come up with like riffs and he does the lyrics, you know, and then we'll just like jam on it and uh, spew something out. It's like the Play-Doh Fun Factory mm -hmm. and we just <laughs> stuff it in and it comes out into spaghetti or little figures or something. And you guys are uh, playing out on the road right now? Yeah, we've been on the road for like a month and uh, we're playing, we wrap up the American leg of the tour in Seattle with Mud Honey uh, on Halloween and uh, we've wrapped it up. <laughs> so look for these guys hopefully to come back to the States soon. Mm -hmm. And thank you very much for kicking back on the ball with us and finding us about Nirvana, which everybody, like I said, it seems to be talking about right now. now, now.
something in the way was definitely the hardest track to record in Nevermind. After three or four takes of trying to cut it live in the main room, um, it just wasn't happening. And Kurt came into the control room. Out of frustration, he sat on the couch and he basically said, it needs to sound like this. He laid in his back and he started playing the guitar and he was barely singing. It was coming out almost a whisper. I was like, okay, stop, stop, stop. And I quick grabbed a couple of mics and plugged them in. I unplugged the phone. I turned the fans off in the tape machine and said, this is it. Just do what you think you need to do right now. And I literally held my breath for three minutes while he sang it. I mean, it was so quiet and yet it was so powerful. And that was the core of the track. It's very mournful, very quiet. Something in the Way is a complicated song because people instantly assumed that Cobain talked about himself living under this bridge. And it went down in legend that he lived under this bridge. Very few people end up homeless and are that separated from their families. But the emotional truth of what teenagers feel um, is so captured in that song. And that's something that we all go through in our normal existence on this earth. second verse again gets very very quiet I'll bring in some of the instrumentation here as we went back and overdubbed it was very difficult for both Chris and Dave to do the drums and bass because with no click track the timing was kind of all over the place and I think I tortured him on it I literally at some points we punched bar by bar just to make sure it was really languid. When Dave was doing the drums, Kurt was in the back of the control room saying, quieter, 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 and I think it's in his nature to hit hard. But he played it very mellow, very understated. And they were recorded in Studio B at Sound City, which is a dead dry room compared to the big live room. Add the high harmonies on the chorus. Last, we brought in Kirk Canning to do a cello. And he had the same problem that Chris did trying to get the track in tune to tune to Kurt's 
funky five-string acoustic. So the track is a little out of tune, but that gives it kind of the eeriness. It helps, helps with it, gives it a lot of character. Very mournful cello sound. You don't have to be an existentialist to get what Kurt Cobain is is singing about on those songs. It's a it's a universal truth in some ways. I think that we all feel alienated from each other and from our own uh, beings at time. And he just cut to the core and put it right there in his music. Kurt was um, attractive to a lot of people, to a lot of young people who were maybe a bit confused about their place in the world, because I think they saw him and they heard his music and they heard somebody who was equally confused and unsure of their place in the world. He was, you know, he was a reporter in a way. He wasn't just writing about himself um, any more than John Lennon was or Bob Dylan. Um, and he took all of this stuff and he made it sound, he made it sound like he was singing about you. People picked up on Kurt like being the real thing. This is his calling. I mean, it's almost messianic in a way.
hope you all enjoy the album and all of those clips that I put together. And now it's time for the B-sides and assorted final tracks that we're going to play here on this episode of the I Am Vinyl podcast. And the first one I'm going to play is from the CD single of Smells Like Teen Spirit, and it's called Even In His Youth. first hearing that unreleased track on the CD single for Smells Like Teen Spirit, it immediately became one of my favorite Nirvana songs. And the next one is the second unreleased track on that CD single, another version that does not appear on the Incesticide album that would come out a few years later. This one's called Aneurysm.
This next B-side is from the CD single for Lithium, which I remember like it was yesterday being a really big deal at the time because it contained the lyrics to Nevermind inside the two-page inlay as there was a lot of high demand from fans to want to know what exactly was Kurt saying in a lot of those lyrics. And so this one is called Curmudgeon. Here's another B-side that's also on the 4LP edition of Nevermind and was originally also on the Japanese EP Hormoning and it's a cover song by a band called The Wipers and it's called D7. straight 
Wesley from the 20th anniversary 4LP edition of Nevermind. Here's one of the tracks from the Smart Studio recording sessions, and this would appear a few years later on Incesticide. But in this case, you get the full intro, which to me it sounds like a little more of a tape hiss that leads into Chris Novoselic's bass, whereas on Incesticide, it immediately starts off with the bass. And so this song is called Dive.
one of my favorites right there with Dive. And those of you who picked up Nevermind on CD back when it was originally released, maybe you were like me in that it was the first time you had ever seen a CD where if you were on the last track and you happened to be looking at the time display to see the remaining time, you saw a track that was uh, well over, I think, 10 minutes, if I recall correctly. And you were wondering, wow, this is, this is going to be a pretty long song. But then it happens to end after about three minutes or so. And so if you were me at this point, you were wondering if you had a defective CD that had all this extra space at the end for no reason whatsoever. And I let this thing play, as I recall, the first time I was listening to Nevermind, until this track appeared.
could not truly end this show as a Nirvana fan and a fan of Nevermind without playing the hidden track, Endless Nameless, which also happens to appear as an unlisted track on the 4LP edition of Nevermind. And so I hope you enjoyed today's show, and as always, I encourage you all to check out our other shows. The Wrestling House Show, Rock Strikes 10, The Synaptic Empire, Talking Rock, and The Last Theater. So until next time, we will see you here at the I Am Vinyl Podcast at cnjradio.com.